trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So if you are, uh, you know, freedom curious or maybe you're just a diehard wrong thinker, I'm really glad you're part of my audience. And I'll admit to right up front, this program is not for everybody. It's a little too intense for some. I've, I've lost count of how many people have said, yeah, I tried to listen. Uh, it's just not for me. And that doesn't make them bad people. It just means that uh, for whatever reason, this is is not what they need to hear at this point in time. And that's okay. But for those who are looking for truth, as in trying to get a better handle on what's really happening in the world, and more importantly, what you and I can do about it, well, you found the right place. So come, let us revel in wrong think, and uh, let's have some fun while we're doing it. See, sometimes I think it's helpful to zoom out, get that view from 30,000 feet occasionally, and just try to get a lay of the land. What exactly is going on? There's a lot that's happening. Much of it is is alarming, to put it mildly. Got a great article here from Doug Casey. This was published on LewRockwell.com earlier today. And it's a great bigger picture explanation of the current struggle between the powerful forces of centralization and decentralization. So I'm going to hit just a couple of excerpts of what he talks about here, because I think he does a really good job of of summarizing where the conflict is. And and more importantly, he also talks a lot about what we can do to better position ourselves for what's coming. It starts with a question asked asked by international man of Doug Casey. International man says, we're seeing several disturbing trends converge. Currency debasement, increased surveillance, and more travel restrictions. It seems governments everywhere, with the World Economic Forum elite behind them, are waging an all-out war on ordinary people worldwide. What do you make of this trend, and where is it headed? Okay, here's Doug Casey's answer. He says, well, as I said earlier, the World Economic Forum is actually an informal United Nations, which is bad enough. It's populated by people who like the idea of powerful government in general, and a powerful world government in particular. Doug Casey says, when you look at history, you find that there are people who arise from seemingly nowhere and are able to put themselves in positions of huge influence and power. So in today's world, that usually happens through elections. But Bismarck, Napoleon, Mao, Kissinger, Schwab, Gates, and most others didn't come up through elections for what they're worth. They came up through force of personality, cleverness, and connections. In other words, elections are essentially an Americanism. He says, incidentally, I don't believe in elections or democracy as means for determining who your boss is and who controls you. Elections have rarely been more than popularity contests at best, and more often, mob rule dressed in a coat and tie. As H.L. Mencken quipped, an election is just an advance auction on stolen goods. And Doug Casey says, now more than ever, they're just rubber stamps for political operators who are adept at using the media and other forms of influence to get the hoi polloi to robotically legitimize their rulers. Now, manipulating public opinion has become a fine art of using electronic media. And it's especially effective in getting the bottom half of society, let's call them marginal citizens who aren't famous for researching issues or thinking critically, to vote one way or another. 
Now, voting can make sense if voters are virtuous, independent thinkers, at least 21 years old, and property owners. Many today are none of these things. That's why elections are meaningless shams more now than ever. They do nothing but legitimize power junkies. See, this is some pretty strong truth here. I, I don't know if you agree, but I'm, I'm nodding my head going, oh yeah, he's right. Now, Doug Casey asks, so where's this trend going? Well, as the economy and the dollar deteriorate further, people are likely to look for a strong leader, someone who'll promise to make things better if he's given enough power. Now, strong governments come in many flavors, but because life so often imitates art, he says, I think that it makes sense to look at science fiction for a view of the future. One possibility is that governments will become overtly draconian and move in the direction of George Orwell's 1984. And some are already using, which some are already using as an instruction book. Another possibility is outlined in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where biological modifications and drugs are used to create a kinder and gentler kind of police state. Meanwhile, our friends at the World Economic Forum assure us that by 2030, we'll own nothing and be happy because everybody will have a guaranteed annual income. Now, that sounds good to proles and wokesters who not only hate their jobs, but have so much debt that they already own less than nothing. His point is, these things are happening right before our eyes. And the question is whether it's possible to reverse the trend. Trends in motions tend to stay in motion and current trends toward economic, political and social upset are accelerating. So at some point, he says, I'd say very soon, they'll reach a crisis point where anything can happen. And it's a good bet we could see a collapse of the current system, at which point a whole new paradigm might be set up whether we like it or not. Now, of course, the World Economic Forum types call it the Great Reset. It's unlikely to be convenient or pleasant for most people over the next 10 to 20 years as the world reshapes itself. Remember, the world changed totally after World War I, and it changed even more radically after World War II. What's going on right now is at least that magnitude. And he says, I think anything before 2019 is going to be known as the before times. It's almost like we're emulating science fiction. Now, next he's asked about, okay, but you've, you've predicted the eventual destruction of the nation state. He says, and an international man asked him, in large countries like the U.S. and Brazil, for, exi- for instance, it's clear the values and culture of people in some parts of the country are entirely different, even opposed to those in other regions. What can we expect in these large nation states? Okay, now here he's talking about decentralization. Doug Casey says that's not all bad news. The World Economic Forum types are trying to make governments bigger. They're trying to centralize things more. But at the same time, centrifugal forces will tear apart many nation states and decentralize society. In fact, he says in the examples you mentioned, the northeast of Brazil could and probably should separate from the south. They're different countries culturally, economically, and racially. Even their religious traditions are different. In the U.S., Young Chicano males in California have about zero in common with old white women in the Northeast, except that they'll soon be paying 15% of their earnings in Social Security to support them, and they won't like it. He says there are numerous regional differences now that the U.S. has devolved into what amounts to a multicultural domestic empire. And as tens of millions of Thanksgiving, at tens of millions of Thanksgiving tables two weeks ago, he says, I'll warrant there wasn't much talk beyond trivialities because the country is so divided among or over red and blue issues. So he says, my guess is Russia will start breaking up along ethnic, cultural, and linguistic lines. Only half their population are ethnic Russians. And he says, I don't doubt the same thing will happen in China as its economy falls apart in this decade. 
And while the country's transformed over the last 40 years, he says there have been mis- huge misallocations of capital from ghost cities to their belt and road venture, which will collapse along with their banking system. Most of the countries in Europe have secessionist movements. There's not a single country in Africa where national borders have anything to do with linguistic or ethnic borders. Not to mention that tens of millions of young Africans and Middle Easterners are going to migrate to Europe. And there's nothing the Europeans can or will do to stop it. It's as if Europe has signed its own death warrant. It's a dying culture and will dry up and blow away when it's overrun by alien masses, which they seem to welcome. And with it will go the values of Western civilization, which means that the currently brewing chaos is going to change the nature of the world at large. Now, he says, of course, change is the only constant. It's good that change came to ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, medieval or medieval Europe, and hundreds of other cultures, even though it was traumatic for them at the time. But he says, I believe Western Civ is not only unique in all of history, but orders of magnitude better at least if you define better, as personal freedom and a high standard of living for the average man. He says secession and decentralization will, hopefully, against the will of the globalists in the World Economic Forum, happen all over the world. In big countries like those we've mentioned, down to obscure countries like Bolivia or Burma, both of which are likely to break into at least two or three in the years to come. Now, on the local level, it's going to be dangerous and inconvenient because, of course, the powers that run governments will try to hold them together while secessionists try to break them up into smaller entities. And Doug Casey says, I'm almost always on the side of the secessionists because a smaller entity comes closer to a grouping of people that share linguistic, ethnic, racial, religious, and philosophical values. And that makes it more stable. Ideally, the world will reorganize in phylis. In fact, we're making a move in that direction, albeit with cautious baby steps. So, while he says, I think secession movements and the breakup of huge nation states are part of the answer, that's not the same thing as saying that it's going to be pleasant. The American war between the states was very unpleasant and inconvenient for everybody alive at that time. And most secession movements and revolutions, like most of them, it failed. So there's no guarantee that any of these are going to be successful. But these are the kind of times we're looking at. And he says it may be our best chance, best chance rather, for avoiding something like world government. I know, it's a sobering thing to consider. But if you're very serious about uh, wanting to know what exactly are we up against, I think Doug Casey has a point of view that's worth considering. Got a link to this in my show notes. Access it at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to garagedoorproservices.com. They serve St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. And they serve them with installation service and repair of garage doors, just like the name says. Quick response, much faster lead time than any than any other companies will give you. And, of course, commercial service as well as residential service. Find out more by going to garagedoorproservices.com. I just want to follow up with a couple quick final thoughts here from Doug Casey's interview with International Man about the struggle between the powerful forces of centralization and decentralization. 
when Doug is asked, look, he, actually, international man says, look, we've got this struggle between these two powerful forces, governments, large corporations, and globalists. They're the ones all pushing hard for centralization in all aspects of life. But at the same time, there are very powerful forces pulling towards decentralization. And so the question is, where do you think this is all headed? Doug's answer is, in third world countries, millions of people are moving towards the big cities as a way to better themselves. Meanwhile, in countries like the U.S., people who are in a position to are moving out of the big cities. It's centralization on one hand and decentralization on the other. Now, the same's happening in the world of finance. With any luck, Bitcoin will triumph completely over fiat currencies and central bank digital currencies. He says the impending collapse of unsound financial and economic systems of the world will result in the reinstitutionalization of gold as money along with Bitcoin. And he says as all of this happens, a lot of corporations will go under and then their employees are going to have to find new ways to put groceries on the table. The point is, not everybody will succeed. So there's potential for mass chaos on numerous levels in the years to come. But a final note, and this is on the bright side. The globalists, the World Economic Forum folks, and the Jacobins pushing for more centralization are quite arrogant. And so there's a good chance they'll overreach, even though now it looks like they're winning. Maybe the average guy, even if he doesn't go out and ride in the streets, might still wake up. I guess the bottom line is, a lot of people are becoming very unhappy about their lower standard of living and increasing controls. And Doug Casey says perhaps enough of them will figure out the causes and retake their personal lives into their own hands, not just as part of a mob or a group, but as sovereign individuals. And that really is what it comes down to. I know we're supposed to go, sovereign, play sovereign citizen, you think you're above the law or something? If you don't understand what sovereignty is, if that word gives you, you know, an immediate knee-jerk reaction, it's time to do a little bit of homework on your own and discover. What exactly does that mean? What does it mean to be sovereign in terms of your own life, your body, your mind, your soul? See, that's scary to some people. Oh, that sounds like a person who's a law unto themselves. That's, that's just some anarchist out there doing whatever he dang well pleases. Is it, though? Or are you just repeating, you know, what statists have trained into you that uh, anything that's not under the control of the state is by definition out of control? It's something we're thinking about. I'm not going to give you the answer, by the way. I'm just going to say maybe that's something you want to look into a little more closely. All right, moving on. If you get a sense that we are being steered towards uh, greater tyranny, you're certainly not alone. Got an article here from Edward Ring about the tyranny of the minority. Just an excellent uh, piece from AmericanGreatness.com. How a few hundred super rich elites and a powerful handful of woke and climate activist ringleaders are now tyrannizing America. It really does seem this way. And I know, you know, even on the political right, I see people, uh, you know, if you're if you're questioning, you know, the the elections, it's I, I don't know why some people think it's very sophisticated to, to think that, well, of course, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with the way the votes are being counted. I do have serious questions about I think I don't think elections are really a matter of, well, we're just registering the vote of the people. I think the way that power is being seized today is through deliberate manipulation of the counting of the votes. And I, frankly, I, I didn't have a lot of faith in voting before, but now my, my faith in the, in the election systems is, is really at, at an all-time low. 
enough so that, you know, I'm ready. I'm, I've already been looking for an exit strategy for some time. I'm ready to start building whatever comes next and uh, not putting quite so much effort and energy into trying to reform a system that uh, is, is clearly able to be manipulated. Besides, I mean, just because someone wins a popularity contest, really? Are they now your boss? Is that, is that how we're supposed to live? Well, I guess they won. I have to do what they say. Nope. I have a mind of my own. You have a mind of your own. And just because someone wins the popularity contest, I'm putting that wins in, in quotation marks, that doesn't mean that you are bound, you're duty-bound to do whatever they say. If what they're saying is wrong or if it is contrary to uh, what is right and good and true, I think you actually have the duty to do exactly the opposite. And, and you, you ultimately have the say. This is the, this is the key thing that I think so many of us miss out on. Consent is everything. And if they can convince you, if those who have, uh, have won the popularity contest can convince you, well, you know, because I won, you have to consent to whatever I'm telling you. It is only when you acquiesce and go, okay, I guess I will. And people do it because they want to appear to be a good citizen. Oh, you know, I'm a good person. See, I do what I'm told. I'm obedient. There's no nice way to say this, so I'm just going to be painfully blunt. Obedience does not make you a good person. Now, obedience to God is one thing in that it's very freely chosen. God doesn't show up on your doorstep with a badge and a gun and threaten to take you to jail or fine you or other things. No. But politics works that way. But you have the choice. You can withhold your consent. And, you know, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfectly free of risk. You may actually find people with guns and badges on your doorstep trying to force you and coerce you into obedience. My deepest respect is for the people who have figured out ways to tell them no and to make it stick. But the more people who do this, the more other people realize, hey, we can withhold our consent. We can say no. So I'm going to encourage you, take a look at this article by Edward Ring, The Tyranny of the Minority. I'll hit you with a couple of quick excerpts. He says, in The Federalist, James Madison famously warned against the tyranny of the majority, but Edward Ring says it's unlikely he could have envisioned what we face today. 21st century America is dissolving before our eyes as a tyrannical coalition of minorities steals our heritage and sovereignty, not ethnic minorities. Their American bequest is being stolen right alongside that of America's shrinking white majority. Nobody is exempt, and everybody should unite to resist. Minorities in this context refers to the elite vanguard of what California California political writer Joel Kotkin has called the upstairs-downstairs coalition, a voting bloc that brings together the most destitute with the most privileged parts of our society. So the way it breaks down is at the top are a few thousand of the super rich. At the bottom are a few thousand hardened fanatics, many of them professionals. These two super minorities working in tandem currently control the destiny of America. Expertly manipulating the voters in the upstairs-downstairs coalition, they're actively destroying everything we love and everything we need. Let me skip ahead here. It's a a fairly lengthy article, uh, but when you see the public agenda of Antifa and BLM is equity, for the homeless industrial complex, the, the key word is compassion. For climate, militants, mili- for, uh, climate militants, it's saving the earth. For gender warriors, it's an end to discrimination. But the common thread in all of these cases, their hidden agenda, is to advance the power of the state. 
It's to divide and demoralize the population, to destroy conventional traditions and norms, and consolidate private property ownership in the hands of a small elite. So from outraged parents swarming in to be heard at school board meetings to individuals everywhere merely wanting to protect their families, their homes, and their businesses, those who defend order and normalcy are now considered the divisive ones. Worse, they're deemed dangerous and condemned by nearly every influential institution in the country. Maybe that's something you've experienced yourself. Just remember, this can't stand because there are so few of them and there are too many of us. But you've got to find the courage to resist. I suggest you start that resistance by learning what your sovereignty is and how to withhold your consent when necessary. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank my sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, as well as monticellocollege.org. And, you know, I, I really thought today I was starting out kind of calm. I was like, wow, oh, you know, Brian, you're keeping on top of this. You're keeping a cool head. But, wow, after the last couple of segments, I'm, I'm thinking, no, you're, you're on a bit of a rant. But sometimes it feels good to just get this out in the open. So thank you for letting me share with you. Thanks for letting me vent. I hope it's at least providing a little bit of light as well as heat. But ultimately, I think there are some truths that need to be spoken. Not all of them are easy truths. Not all of them are something that feels good in our ears. But there are things that need to be spoken because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot riding on our ability to recognize what's happening and to, to know what is the course of action we need to take. All right, I wanted to take a moment here to, uh, to share uh, one of the better articles I've seen about Dr. Fauci's deposition. And, and I have to say, for a guy who thought he was the personification of science, Dr. Fauci really had a tough time recalling what he did or didn't do about lockdowns. And two of, uh, two of the best writers that I know of and thinkers that I know of are Philip W. Magnus as well as James R. Harrigan. This is a piece from the American Institute for Economic Research, Forgetful Fauci's Deposition. All those lies are hard to keep straight. They say Anthony Fauci's penchant for misleading the public about COVID-19 may be heading into a federal courtroom soon, owing to a lawsuit brought by the Attorneys General of Missouri, Louisiana, and the New Civil Liberties Alliance. On November 23rd, Fauci sat down for a sworn deposition about his own actions in directing the United States pandemic response. Consistent with his past media appearances, Fauci displays a penchant for bending the truth to fit his own narrative and, more specifically, denied his own involvement in suppressing the Great Barrington Declaration in October 2020. Only this time, it was under oath. Just about a year ago, on the anniversary date of October 5th, 2021, to be exact, we took what we thought would be our retrospective and dispassionate look at the Great Barrington Declaration as lockdowns dissipated and mask mandates faded away. Two months later, the American Institute for Economic Research discovered a shocking revelation in emails received from a Freedom of Information Act request to Fauci's office. In early October of 2020, Dr. Francis Collins, then director of the National Institutes of Health, ordered Fauci and his trusted lieutenant, Clifford Lane, to wage a quick and devastating published takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration's premises. 
Armed with a federal judge's order, the attorneys general in the Missouri et al. lawsuit finally got a chance to question Fauci about his involvement in these attacks on the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, they were specifically investigating whether Collins and Fauci's actions contributed to censorship of anti-lockdown arguments under the COVID misinformation policies of social media companies such as Twitter, Facebook, and Google. Fauci, the man who since 2020 has promoted himself as America's doctor and a walking embodiment of the science, responded by denying he ever meaningfully engaged with the GBD. Fauci was asked about his role in Collins' devastating takedown directive, which ended with the the National Institute of Health's director's question, I don't see anything online yet. Is it underway? Fauci answered the attorneys general with a bluntly stated denial about his involvement. No, this is not something I would be involved in. As I told you, I have a very important day job that is running a $6.4 billion institute. I would not be involved in examining this and doing something that would, quote, counter it. Now, the attorney generals pressed him further on what Collins' email meant, if not a directive for Fauci and Lane to prepare an attack. Fauci pleaded innocence, suggesting Collins was likely talking about writing a scholarly article to contest some of the premises of the GBD. Amazing. Now, the problem with Fauci's denials and his speculation about an academic motive in Collins' order is that they're provably false. The original emails from the American Institute for Economic Research's Freedom of Information request request show Fauci and Collins jumped into action to smear and discredit the Great Barrington Declaration in the media. They went directly to the national press, labeling its authors Martin Koldorf, Sunetra Gupta, and Jay Bhattacharya as fringe epidemiologists and branding the declaration itself as nonsense in Fauci's words. Fauci's own answer to Collins came in an email sent a mere 10 minutes after he received the devastating takedown order. Instead of examining the Great Barrington Declaration's scientific claims and making a scholarly counter-argument, Fauci enlisted the authority of a political writer with no scientific qualifications. He circulated an opinion piece from Wired magazine, declaring the Great Barrington Declaration false on the now comical pretext that the lockdown phase of the pandemic was already behind us in October 2020. By then, three weeks to flatten the curve had already become seven months, and there was no end in sight. The emails show that Fauci and Collins quickly mobilized the national media against the Great Barrington Declaration. Collins employed, deployed rather the fringe epidemiologist's line in an October 13, 2020 interview with the Washington Post. In a private email to Fauci, Fauci, he boasted, My quotes are accurate but will not be appreciated in the White House. Fauci quipped in response that they're too busy with other things to worry about this, a possible reference to the fact that then-President Donald Trump tested positive for COVID a day earlier. But Fauci reiterated his agreement with Collins, stating, what you said was entirely correct. Fauci and Collins' actions over the next several days show no signs of either man working on a scholarly article to answer the Great Barrington Declaration in a scientific journal. They do, however, show the pair waging an aggressive campaign in the national news media to attack and discredit the Great Barrington Declaration scientists. A day after Collins' Washington Post interview, Fauci emailed his team in an apparent response to a thread entitled, quote, regarding the Great Barrington Declaration, He likened the document to the AIDS denialist days of the 1980s, an ironic claim given that Fauci himself spread egregious misinformation about the transmission of AIDS, HIV, and sparked a panic that led to public discrimination against AIDS victims. At this point, the correspondence between Fauci and Collins disappears behind the veil of redaction, 
The original set of emails contains a multi-page message between the pair containing the keywords Great Barrington Declaration and dated sometime between October 14th and 16th, 2020, but it's completely blacked out. The National Institute of Health claimed the email was exempt from the Freedom of Information Act because it contained material from unspecified private deliberations. Now, when the records resume on October 16th, 2020, they contain a partially redacted email to Deborah Burks in which Fauci speculates that Scott Atlas, his anti-lockdown foil on the White House COVID task force, would attempt to sway the White House into endorsing the Great Barrington Declaration. Fauci declared, over the past week, I have come out very strongly publicly against the Great Barrington Declaration, an action that he conveniently has no memory of doing, according to his statements under oath from the Missouri lawsuit deposition. The Fauci-Collins onslaught against the Great Barrington Declaration continued, and at some point in the next week, Fauci apparently directed his chief of staff, Greg Folkers, to round up a list of political op-eds against the Great Barrington Declaration. Folkers responded on November 2nd, 2020, in an email titled, As Discussed. When the attorney, by the way, there are links, there are are actually images of each of these emails, so you can see this with your own eyes. Now, when the attorneys general questioned Fauci about this request and its connection to the devastating takedown order, his memory suddenly failed him. I don't recall, Fauci answered. Greg would probably send me something that I've asked for. So somehow back then, a couple of years ago, I asked for articles concerning herd immunity. I believe he sent them. So we will likely never know the full extent of the takedown campaign due to the National Institute of Health's heavy use of redaction and delay tactics to hide the contents of the requested emails. Their initial batch of Freedom of Information Act documents stops in early November 2020. Just last week, AIER received a second batch of records from the agency covering Fauci and Collins' correspondence in this same time period, with their counterparts in the UK. A full 58 out of 61 requested pages of records were blacked out under specious invocations of Freedom of Information Act exemption rules. And the agency has yet to respond to other Freedom of Information Act requests submitted nearly a year ago. That said, the emails, the email records we do possess contain ample evidence of Fauci's involvement in the takedown order, plainly contradicting his sworn deposition. In those emails, we see Collins colluding with Anthony Fauci while fantastically CCing Lawrence Tabak, deputy ethics counselor at the National Institute of Health, to craft talking points against the, grand, the Great Barrington Declaration in the media. And behind the scenes, we see them working with Deborah Burks to keep the Great Barrington Declaration off the White House COVID task force agenda. And we see Fauci's instructions to Folkers to assemble a list of media op-eds attacking the Great Barrington Declaration with the apparent intent of parroting them back to the very same press as official talking points from the National Institutes of Health. Think about that for a moment. The director of the National Institutes of Health all but ordered the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases to put together a smear campaign aimed at three distinguished scientists, each from an elite institution, Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford, if you're keeping track at home, who were simply going where the science took them. But Anthony Fauci decided that he himself was the representative of science, and no other opinions would be welcome in the public sphere. So it's not really that much of a surprise Fauci wants to forget about all this right now. It's unseemly, after all, that the representative of science would target fellow scientists trying to do their jobs. And Fauci's evasions leave us with more questions than answers and more clues that he used his position to persecute and suppress dissenting scientific beliefs. 
check it out. I've got a link to it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, we are uh, moving ahead. I've got just a couple of articles I want to share in this final segment. First one is, uh, this is an article from David Harsanyi. Why Elon Musk's Twitter files matter. Look, I I like to spend a little bit of time on Twitter. Uh, The reason I like to go on there, first of all, there are some really funny people who are just great at at saying things in in very few words, and and they're they're just razor sharp wit. I like that. I also like the fact that there are people who can make sense of some of the more complex issues. They can distill it down to the essence of, look, here's what's at stake. Now, the bad news is there's also a lot of toxic stuff that goes on on Twitter. The Twitter sphere, uh, it, it can be a pretty ugly place. But with a little bit of discretion on your part, you can learn, look, these are the useful places or the useful parts of Twitter, and you can learn to reject or block or just simply stay away from the ones that are toxic. But I wanted to share a couple excerpts from uh, David Harsanyi's uh, article here, which he, he says, this is a rant. He says, mostly because the evidence confirms all my priors, Elon Musk's release of emails relating to Twitter's 2020 presidential election censorship efforts confirms that big political media, big tech con- companies, rather, and former intelligence officials were part of a uh, rat effing co- operation in 2020. It confirms that the social media platform suppressed unfavorable stories to benefit one party, dispelling the notion that the platform acted as a neutral arbiter. It confirms claims of dis and misinformation are often used by censors to quash inconvenient news and debate. And the reaction from political journalists to these revelations confirms there are no regrets. Now, he says, we haven't even seen all the emails. Not that we need a Ron Klain email demanding Twitter suspend the New York Post's account to know what happened. Coordination doesn't necessitate explicit instructions from a political Svengali. People know what to do without being told. Partisans coalesce around talking points and groupthink metastasizes. And this happens all the time on both sides. It happened when journalist Matt Taibbi was reporting on the Twitter files the other night, and virtually every big left-wing account dropped nearly the same rhetoric and framing to smear him as doing PR work for the world's richest man. And what we learned was plenty of Twitter higher-ups knew the company's rationale for killing a major news story right before an election was hopelessly rickety. In fact, uh, uh, communications official Trenton Kennedy asked about the Hunter Biden story. I'm struggling to understand the policy basis for marking this as unsafe. Then Vice President of Global Communications Brandon Borman asked, can we truthfully claim that this is part of the policy? But then General Counsel... Jim Baker, who just got fired, one of the Democrats who uh, helped run the Russia collusion on uh, swindle on Americans, responded that it was reasonable for us to assume that they may have been hacked and that caution is warranted. All they needed were 51 former intelligence officials, including known perjurers like Jim Clapper and John Brennan, to claim that Hunter Biden's story had all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. And then they passed this deceitful claim to the unscrupulous journalist Natasha Bertrand, then at Politico. From there, the story was repeated endlessly by gullible reporters and or willful hacks, and Twitter had its justification. So they'd never be able to hide the story, but they would be able to undercut the public's trust in the newsworthy aspects. 
If more voters believed that Joe had known about his son cashing in on the family name or that there was circumstantial evidence the former vice president was a beneficiary of those shady Chicom and Ukrainian deals, well, it could have mattered. And after all, the media had convinced themselves the Hillary Clinton email scandal, a completely legitimate story, had handed the election to that orange fascist, well, they never would let journalism get in the way again. Now, if the journalists had gotten their hands on a laptop containing pictures of Don Jr. weighing out 21 grams of crack with a um, sex worker, there's not a social media platform or major media outlet in the universe that would have banned that story. And if that laptop had contained circumstantial evidence linking the Republican presidential candidate to a 10% cut of the Burisma cash, it would have dominated the news, and rightly so. Yet the Washington Post's Philip Bump and Glenn Kessler are still arguing that their newspaper couldn't pass along the story without doing its own independent investigation or verification, rather. Now, David Harsanyi says, when I noted that the Washington Post didn't make a habit of handing over data and sources to competing newspapers, Bump responded, you didn't know that other outlets won't run a report on a post scoop without confirming it themselves? You seem surprisingly uninformed about how actual journalism works, which I suppose isn't really a surprise. David Harsanyi says, well, am I? Because media outlets, including the Washington Post, run scoops from other organizations all the time and simply credit the competing outlet. It would have taken Bump only a few minutes to pursue his own archives to find dozens of such examples. This has not only been the norm since David started in the business more than two decades ago, but since journalism was invented. Of course, the Hunter story with receipts, hard evidence, and on-the-record witnesses had far more journalistic substantiation than virtually any of the anonymous one-source Russian collusion scoops that Bump and the Washington Post peddled for years. Though to be fair, some of these stories, like Jeffrey Goldberg's Losers and Suckers story or the New York Times' Russia Bounty story, which Washington Post columnists shared as irrefutable and unimpeachable, seemingly pulled their sourcing from the ether. Now he goes on here, but he says, look... Look, I don't have any clue if the Hunter story would have turned the 2020 election, and neither do you. But it would be truly refreshing if those dismissing the Twitter files would simply admit they believe Donald Trump and Republicans in general are existential threats to democracy, so journalistic ethics and free expression ideals need to be shelved for the greater good. He says it's in a liberal position for sure, but at least it's an honest one. Amen. I'm, I'm with him on this. You know, my my distrust and my distaste for corporate and mainstream media goes back about 30 years. That's about the time that I really started to make the connection. My gosh, these guys are lying out there. You know what's to us. And, uh, and you know, I don't have to take that. I don't have to believe what they're saying. But the gaslighting, the arrogance, and, and I, I'm sure someone will, will say, well, Brian, that sounds like you're inciting violence, you know, by, by saying this. But the threat to democracy... The threat to self-government, the threat to our continued freedom is not coming from a particular political entity or a political candidate so much as it's coming now from the press itself. They are serving the purposes of people who are actively trying to separate us from our freedoms. And there's probably going to come a day where those who enabled it are going to face their own kind of Nuremberg-type reckoning. And I'll try not to shed a tear for them, but they will not have the luxury of saying, hey, nobody ever warned us. Nobody told us we were on the wrong path. You were warned. You knew. You still chose to sell your soul in a buyer's market. May your chains rest easy. My guess is they probably won't have to rest easy for long. 
All right, one final note here. Um, this this is just a, a perfect milepost on the highway to bizarro world. You know that uh, Drag Queen Story Hour has become kind of a fixture at public libraries across the uh, the country. So tell me this: Why is it that uh, actor Kurt Cam- or Kirk Cameron can't get a single Story Hour booking for his wholesome new children's book at public libraries? Over fifty public libraries have either denied or ignored actor and author Kirk or Kirk Cameron's request for a story hour slot to read his new children's book. According to Cameron's publisher, every library it contacted will host drag queen story hours or other queer-friendly programs for kids. Now, Cameron's book is titled As You Grow. It celebrates family, faith, and biblical wisdom, which many public libraries said, well, we find that inappropriate for our facilities. You see the trend here? The evangelical Christian hasn't been able to secure a single story hour booking at a public library in the 50 50 libraries he talked to across the U.S. to read his book. Now, the book is part of a whole universe of books with a whole series of characters. Cameron told Fox in a recent interview, it teaches biblical wisdom, the value of producing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Oh, that's probably why they have such an aversion right there. But all these libraries still reject it. Nope, that's inappropriate material. But hey, this one here about how to better play with yourself or how to better, you know, engage in this particular sex act or how to explore your own gender fluidity. Oh, yeah, we've got plenty of room for that. Look, I hate to sound like the old guy yelling at a cloud, but uh, how on earth have we reached this point? How have we come to the point where, you know, things that, that are actually wholesome and uplifting... And they're not being imposed on anybody. It's not like you will either agree with this or you will be, you know, denounced. You know, if, if, if Kirk Cameron would dress up in women's underwear and, and go talk to kids about exploring their sexuality, well, he'd have libraries just uh, standing in line. Oh, sir, come and, come and be a part of this. But because he is standing for something that actually has values, that actually recognizes light and darkness, that's intolerable. Isn't that something? I don't know about you, but to to me, that is a symptom of a problem that is scarier than all the political scandals put together. The fact that we have lost our grip on reality to the point that we call sin good and good sin. Crazy stuff. This is The Brian Hyde Show.